0: Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works.
1: Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and there's Jerry over there, and this is Stuff You Should Know in the house.
0: Uh, I think we should say what just happened off mic, because as Jerry does once every mm, 300 episodes, Mm -hmm. she... Realizes what we're recording on and has an actual comment about it. Right. <laughs> and this is about Live Aid. And she went, eh, I was in London when Live Aid happened. And Josh said, did you go? Jerry said, no, I didn't know it was happening. Right. Because we forget in 1985, there wasn't an internet blast. Like, no, Live Aid was a big deal, but little Jerry, little 12-year-old Jerry in London doesn't know what's going on.
1: No. To get any info, you have to go down to the corner and look at the telephone pole and see what somebody stapled there.
0: Yeah, or go to hear the town crier on his uh, soapbox in the park, Hyde Park. Sure. So uh, it was a very (laughs) anticlimactic story because it led to nothing but, like, anyway, I was there. Yeah, her justification was,
1: I was 12. (laughs) Yeah. I had no control or agency over my life.
0: Probably true. Uh, But Jerry, had you been just three years older— You might have been uh, pulled up on stage with Bono to dance.
1: To dance, to dancing in in the dark.
0: Uh, No, that was Bruce Springsteen. And Courtney Cox. He he did not play Live Aid. You know that was Courtney Cox though, right? Sure. It was not real. It was set up. She was an actor and still is.
1: (laughs) I thought it was just coincidence.
0: But uh, yeah, one of the most famous moments of Live Aid was when Bono, and we'll get there, but I watched it again today, man. I got a little teary. Did you? It was such a great moment.
1: Oh, I just wanted to be like Bono, stop! No,
0: that's what everyone in the band was doing. <laughs> I'm sure it was like Edge. You could Ed still had hair it was before he just started wearing beanies all the time. Right. And they they were playing the great song "Bad," and they did like a 17 minute version of their like 22 minute set mm-hmm. because Bono wanted to dance with a girl. Yeah, and he finally jumped down onto the floor of uh, Wembley Stadium. Mm-hmm. Got this young 15-year-old girl, Dance with her for like 15 seconds. Right. Took another five minutes to get back to the stage because that's how long it takes to yep. get back up on stage.
1: Look a panic starts crossing <laughs> his face as he realizes what's going on. And
0: Edge is up there, and Adam Clayton has his big uh, white afro, and uh, Larry Mullen still looks identical, as he always has. Is he and they the just, drummer? Yeah, and they mm-hmm. just played that same riff from Bad over and over and over. And they were a little mad because uh-huh. he only got to do two songs. Right. They we're going to close with uh Pride in the Name of Love, which everybody like wanted to hear. Sure, that was a big hit, you know. They were a young band at the time. Bono mm-hmm. was only 25 mm-hmm. and uh the band was a little miffed, but then as it turns out that became one of the iconic moments of Live Aid and it really launched you two into the stratosphere.
1: Yeah. Which I mean Bono lucked out on that one. Yeah. Cuz I imagine backstage right after that set was not a pleasant place sure, to be for like, him.
0: dude. What It's not about you.
1: Yeah. What
0: are you doing? Yeah.
1: But it was a nice moment. He said, I really wanted to dance with that 15-year-old girl.
0: I know. It was very sweet. Her name is uh, Cal Kalik, and she says that she was getting kind of smushed and that that kind of helped her out Was security, <laughs> like pulling her by her hair over the barrier. <laughs> yeah.
1: It did not look very comfortable. It was rough. I should probably say at this point, or we should, a lot of the stuff we're talking about, you can go see. Yeah, I was actually when I was researching this, I was like, "What a time to be alive!" Oh,
0: man, I was just pouring through these videos.
1: Yeah, you can just go watch most of the stuff we're talking about yeah. is is out there on YouTube. So if uh, if you ever just go what, pause, mm-hmm. go to YouTube, y o u t u b e dot com, mm-hmm.
0: type in live dash a i d.
1: Yeah, you don't even need the dash. <laughs> their their algorithm <laughs> is that smart; it'll know what you're talking about. Uh-huh. And um, start watching videos.
0: Yeah, I watched a a bunch. We should just talk about some of the ones through the episode that we watched. Okay. The last thing I watched before we got up to record was uh, Sabbath.
1: I didn't watch that one.
0: The Sabbath reunion. Yeah. Uh And we'll also say this was 1985, mm-hmm. so when you think, man, Zeppelin reunion, Sabbath reunion, right. what that really means is, like, chubby, big-haired Ozzy mm-hmm. and, like, Robert Plant wearing, like, Electric blue and baggy pants. You know, he, he was dressed like AC
1: Slater from Saved by the Bell.
0: Yeah, it's a big fat '80s reminder. Like, oh right, that's what people look like. Yeah, even John Deacon from Queen had like a big puffy mm-hmm. pleated outfit.
1: Oh yeah, '85 was like <laughs> they had good. the '80s flag going. Yeah, it was very full tough. full bore.
0: Uh, but I was 14, and I think I've told this story before. But I was babysitting. Uh, I had a everyday summer babysitting gig as a 14-year-old babysitting these two kids that were like.
1: 17 and 19. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> they were pretty uh, close to my age looking back. They were probably like 8 and 9 or something. close So I was sort of like paid to go over there and kind of hang out with them and make sure they didn't get in trouble. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like babysitting, babysitting. Right. But I remember I watched virtually all of the Live Aid telecast on MTV. That's awesome. And was just stuck to it all day long that's
1: cool i was i was nine yeah uh and we were in london but i didn't (laughs) go.
0: but you and jerry were uh in hyde park hanging out (laughs) she's like there's this annoying nine-year-old just following me around yeah talking about podcasts says he's from the future right
1: (laughs) (laughs) something about a way back machine
0: um so yeah uh thanks to julia layton who we have uh Doing some writing for us now. Dr. Lates. From back in the old days. She's great and writes great stuff. And I threw Live Aid out there because I thought it'd be good to learn a
1: little bit more about it. It was a good idea. Thanks. So let's talk about the the origins of this. Yes. Because Live Aid happened on July 13th, 1985. And um, the whole thing started, the seed was planted about six months before, well, a little more than six months before, but not much more than that, when either the BBC or the CBC, depending on who you asked, ran a a series of documentaries about a drought and famine that was going on in Ethiopia at the time. And apparently, no one knew about this. No one was reporting on it. It wasn't talked about. And today, Um, It's it's
0: hard to imagine that with our news cycle, but it was different back then,
1: right? But even still, like you know, we 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 became so indoctrinated from that point on, Mm -hmm. in the idea of famine in Ethiopia, yeah, um, that that it's hard to think of you know not connecting the two. But no one knew about it, yeah, and no one knew about it until I should say that the CBC or BBC documentary series, um, was aired, and it was powerful. There was a very famously a young girl, um, let me see if I can find her name, uh, who was, she looked like she was on the verge of death. Yeah. She, her head just kind of lolling around. She's skeletal. Yeah. Um, and she, she looks like at the camera at one point and became kind of the face mm-hmm. of starving children in Ethiopia, like really drove home um, what, what was going on there. Her name was um, uh, Birhan Woldu, and she's grown now and is uh, oh, wow. an ambassador. I was afraid to um, ask. Kind of like a, I don't think she's an official ambassador. But she's kind of a, an a unofficial ambassador for poverty, combating poverty and, and, you and hunger. Too.
0: Well, she. I bet she knows Bono. She,
1: I guarantee she does. Yeah. But but she, she really kind of drove home what was going on to viewers, including a guy from Ireland named Bob Geldof.
0: Yeah, who Julia refers to as a B-list Irish rocker. <laughs> It's probably pretty accurate. The Boomtown Rats were a medium big band at best. Uh, he also, if you're a Pink Floyd fan, uh, he played pink in the movie The Wall. Oh, really? Yeah.
1: I think you tell me this every time Bob Geldof I think so. comes up. Yeah. <laughs>
0: we talked about this before. Yeah. Obviously, there was no pink in real life, but in the movie, there was a character named pink.
1: By the way, which one's pink?
0: Right. Exactly. Um, so, Geldof, they had that great song, uh, I Don't Know Why I Don't Like Mondays.
1: Pink Floyd did? That was
0: the Moontown no, no.
1: Rats, my friend. Yeah, that was. We got their... that one plenty wrong.
0: <laughs> that was their big hit, though. That was Geldof's yeah. big hit.
1: Which, again, I thought was an Elvis Costello song until you oh, explained it to me. That's right. We definitely have talked about that before. That's right.
0: So, um, man, I wonder if 20 years, if we're going to be like,
1: yeah, remember when we. Yeah. Yeah. It's already happening, Chuck. <laughs> uh,
0: but we don't sound like Abe Simpson <laughs> quite yet. So, Geldof saw this, really spoke to him he said, here's what we're going to do. I want to put together a fundraiser. And this is not Live Aid yet. No, Um, this is Band Aid. Right. Previous to Live Aid, uh, they did the song that we, some of us all still love around Christmas time. It's a good song. Some of us hate it. Who does? Do they know it's Christmas?
1: Who hates that song?
0: I think some people hate all Christmas music. Oh, yeah. You know? Or, Or at the very least get sick of certain songs.
1: I can see that. Yeah. But that one is... It's a good I've, one. Okay, I, let me put it this way. I have never gotten sick of that one yet to this day.
0: No, I agree. Um, Bono, of course, Boy George, Bowie, Bananarama, Duran Duran, Wham, U2, Sting, Phil Collins, mm-hmm. you name it. Uh, they were uh, sang on that song, and it, it benefited Ethiopian famine relief. That's what got the ball rolling.
1: Yeah, and again... This is Bob Geldof saw this documentary and started calling up everybody he knew, pulling all these strings and put this together. And everyone was going, How
0: did Bob Geldof get my
1: number? Exactly. He's a B
0: list Cyrus Rocker. Right.
1: <laughs> he he got this single produced and released by December. He saw the documentary in October. I know. So that kind of gives you a hint of the kind of dude Bob Geldof was. He gets things done. He lied. He bluffed. He didn't take what? no for an answer. <laughs> yeah. He got things done sure. for sure. But to him, it was always for the greatest, greater good. The the there was a, a the ends definitely justified the means, especially if it meant manipulating spoiled rockers.
0: Yeah, and and we'll get to some of more uh, some more of that later. He for sure did uh, he, that song itself, though, by itself raised more than ten million bucks. And they have over the years done a few different versions. It seems like they update it every now and then yeah. with with new uh, whoever's the hot uh, British rockers are at the time. <laughs> sure, <laughs> Ed Sheeran, right? He
1: he was in the 2014 <laughs> version, so it was One Direction. Okay, mm-hmm. um, they're a group, right? Yeah. Okay, they're a super group. Oh. Uh, and then, uh, well, I don't know if that's actually accurate or not. But then, Seal—you know—supergroup doesn't just mean they're super. That means right now. That's why I corrected. Myself. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, Sinead O'Connor, she was on it too. Oh, on the newer ones—the 2014 version of "Do They Know It's Christmas." Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, so a
0: month after that, Harry Belafonte got together with a producer named Ken Cragan, or Cragan, and they said. Well, we need to do our own version over here in the U.S. because we're looking pretty bad. Right, Uh, Geldof is a B-list Irish rocker and he's getting all the limelight. I'm Harry Belafonte. Right, so uh, he gets together and they. um, This is where, and this is something I never knew. The song "We Are the World," of course, is what Mm -hmm. we're talking about. Mm -hmm. I always heard "USA for Africa." I always thought it was "United States of America."
1: That's what they wanted you to think.
0: I never knew that it stood for United Support of Artists for Africa. Right. Until today, or yesterday.
1: Well, there you go. How about that? I think it's a a great thing that they surreptitiously slipped that in.
0: Uh, And that song was, um, you know, Quincy Jones famously worked on it. It was written, it was supposed to be written by Lionel Richie, Michael Jackson, and Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder was too, uh, wanted to work on it, but was a little too busy to get involved in the writing at the time. Mm So it fell to Lionel Richie and Michael Jackson, and apparently, if you believe LaToya Jackson, it was mostly Michael who put that song together.
1: I don't know about that, man, because Lionel Richie's a pretty stand-up dude from everything I've ever heard.
0: Well, I don't think he's made some claim, like I wrote half, 50% of that song. Uh, He was apparently pretty blown away, because Michael Jackson, like after he left, went ahead and like cut a demo. Oh, really? And brought it back, and he was like, oh, well, that's impressive, and... Exclusionary.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. 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 Good ideas. Okay. Go, go home. It's like
0: you literally waited till I walked out the door (laughs) to hit record. I'll see you later. Uh, I'd like to see Lionel Richie. I I just looked up his, uh, he played somewhere and I was like, what's he playing these days? I looked up his set list.
1: Is he coming to Chastain anytime?
0: I don't know, man, but the set list is amazing. I'm like, oh, yeah. Every single song, because he's doing Commodore stuff, he's doing his own stuff. Yeah. It's really. It
1: seems like a fun show. A little bit of deep purple. Oh, sure. Yeah. Do we take a break already? No, we haven't, Chuck, and I think it's high time that we did. All right, let's do it. So, where we left off, Charles, was uh, I guess probably by this time about January 1985 in USA for Africa, which does not stand for USA like you think, Mm-mm. released We Are the World because they were inspired by did Do They, they know, know It's Christmas, Christmas at yeah. All. And apparently, boy George had an idea of going bigger and said to Geldof, look, mate, you did pretty good. You raised $10 million. You inspired USA for Africa, which raised like $44 million within a year. Mm-hmm. But you can do more. What if you put on like the biggest concert ever? Maybe you should do that. Boy George out. And yeah. in a puff of smoke <laughs> like he does.
0: I'd like to see Boy George too. I bet that's a fun show.
1: You uh me and I saw Culture Club. Oh,
0: yeah? They were good. How long ago? Like within the last few years, I guess?
1: Yeah, like the last two years.
0: Was it the original uh, Dudes? Yes. As far as you know?
1: <laughs> as far as I know, yeah. And I actually learned at that show that we are never to let on that we're tired because this is the penultimate show of the tour and Boy George kept talking about it to the guitarists about, about how, how tired, tired they were and oh. they just had one more show after this. And I it's still not a love, good look, is I it? I still have Boy George, but yes, it does not come off very well to the audience.
0: Well, I'm not tired. I feel great.
1: That's because we do two shows back to back once a quarter.
0: Oh, you mean live? Live. That's what I mean. Sure,
1: sure. We can talk about anything here. (laughs) It's the live stuff. Right.
0: Uh, I want to go see Adam and the Ants, too. I've been checking out. their touring again. Are they around? I don't know. I mean, it's Adam Ant for sure. I don't know if it's any of the original Ants.
1: Would you know the difference?
0: No, but he's doing great, too. Sure. It's like I like seeing these people coming back around. Yeah. Healthy and like the 80s did not kill them.
1: Well, they're clearly taking a lot of dietary supplements. (laughs) A lot of botanicals.
0: So, like you said, uh, from the point where uh, Do They Know It's Christmas and the the famine documentary started rolling out, Mm -hmm. it was not very long after that they managed to pull off a concert in London and Philadelphia transmitted by 13 satellites to 160 countries uh, to an audience that was 25% of the world's population.
1: I I saw at one point that they announced that ninety-five percent of the world's televisions were tuned in at some point to that broadcast. Wow,
0: that's amazing.
1: It is amazing, and that's amazing today. It was spectacular in 1985.
0: Yeah, and by comparison, the Summer Olympics uh, the year before was only broadcast to sixty-seven countries.
1: Yeah, only. Yeah,
0: ninety ninety. Sorry, sixty-seven countries, and Live Aid was 160. So just we cannot. Uh, overestimate how huge of a deal this was,
1: right? And to just really kind of show off, but also to kind of bind the Western world together. It was held, like you said, at two places a- at once in London and in Philadelphia. Yeah, and RFK Stadium. There were there were concerts going on constantly in both places. In the 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 show, what you would see on TV, what you watched when you were yeah. babysitting would just kind of switch back and forth depending on who had the bigger act at the time. Yeah,
0: these days you could probably do a split screen or sure. they would just show both and, and on two channels.
1: Yeah, but the fact that they were doing it at a time when, as Julia Layton puts it, you know, during a time of cassette tapes and cathode ray tube TVs, mm-hmm. it's just really impressive that, they, that Bob Geldof managed to put it together and help pull it off with very little problem
0: yeah it was in
1: just a few months too uh
0: sixteen hours total for both of the shows uh they overlap by about ten hours um and then there are also uh various satellite concerts going on all over the world mm-hmm. um with now you know they didn't have like sixty performers, but you know smaller shows kind of stage in conjunction
1: yeah like I got the impression that people who had already booked their tours and were locked into a tour date but still wanted to take part kind like of can beam film their me. show in, yeah. Yeah, why not? Like Celine Dion, like doing a number from Las Vegas on, on um, <laughs> New Year's Eve or something.
0: So it all kicked off at 12 noon London time, 7 a.m. in the U.S. Um, the Coldstream Guards played God Save the Queen. Charles and Diana came out on stage.
1: I know, that, that makes it pretty cool. <laughs> it is pretty the, cool. The Diana part. Yeah, of course. What?
0: No love for Charles? I mean, Sure. But he's still around. He's not, a,
1: he's not a Live Aid type. <laughs> no. You know what I mean? No. I think he irons his jeans. <laughs> I don't think he wears jeans. They're right. <laughs> um,
0: You know why? Because he doesn't iron.
1: Yeah, he could probably find somebody <laughs> to iron for him if he wanted to.
0: So uh, they take the stage at Wembley. They inaugurate Live Aid. And then.
1: Wait, hold on. Was that a joke or a reference that just went over my head? What? Ironing the Ironing thing? Yeah. No. Okay. Because no. I'm getting, like, intel and feedback from listeners once in a while who write in. It's like, that was a hilarious reference Chuck made that went right <laughs> over Josh's head. I hate that. Really? Yes. You can't get all the references. I want to get all the references. All right. uh, so, so do this from now on.
0: Okay. <laughs> okay. Josh is blinking at me, everyone. So uh, to kick it off in anti-dramatic, climactic fashion, <laughs> right? that's, that's not very cool to say. The band Status Quo was the first band. They were big in England. I guess. They were. But they, they're, they're well, they kind of corny.
1: They were legendary. They, I think their first hit single was in 1968, and this is 1985. Sure.
0: They've been around the place. And, do they got it off. Like, if you watch mm-hmm. Status Quo mm-hmm. covering John Fogarty's Rockin' All Over the World. Which I did. It, like, the stadium is bouncing uh, with energy. So they were clearly popular over there. They were just never big in the States.
1: No. But they still did a fine job. No, it was fine. An adequate, like <laughs> way to kick off live. That's right. Uh, and who kicked it off in the U.S.? Josh. Uh, it was Joan Baez. Why not? Right. Who came out and was like, "This is your Woodstock, long overdue." And they went, "Who are you?" <laughs>
0: and she sang an a cappella version of Amazing Grace. Oh, nice. Kind of clumsily leading the audience by singing very quickly the next line, and then singing that same oh, line wow. in the American uh, Amazing Grace melody.
1: That really is clunky. It was slightly clunky. Yeah.
0: But, uh, you know, it's a good way to start the show. Sure. <laughs> with so, Amazing Grace. Good song.
1: status quo and Joan <laughs> Baez clunkily singing Amazing Grace. It uh, got better from there, basically.
0: Well, it did. Uh, there were 70 acts. Every act had 20 minutes, which was more or less how long they played. A few bands went over by a few minutes. Mm-hmm. But it's not, if you've ever done a festival or something, it's like it's not cool to to just be like, eh, we'll do one more tune. Right. That's just not something you do.
1: No. I've never played a festival, but I can imagine. No, we've done uh, festival stuff. When? We do Sketchfest every year. Oh, yeah, that's right. You did Outside Lands by yourself. Sure, but I didn't have the impression. <laughs> oh, yeah, they did kind of hustle me out of there. Yeah. I was like, what else you got in the green room? And they're like, just go. <laughs> You're right. Okay, all right, I got you. I thought you were like at
0: the end of your end of the world thing. You were like, hey, anyone want to hear something about? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> You're like, get him off. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, Phil Collins, and this was a very big deal and a total publicity stunt, but it worked. Yeah. Uh, he, and I think we mentioned this in the Concord episode. Oh,
1: we talked about it, yeah. He
0: played both continents... And they had a film crew following him around. They would cut to every once in a while, like Phil Collins on the plane or right. hustling through an
1: airport. There is no better singer then or now to have done this. I maybe you're today, right. Maybe James Corden would, would be the go-to sure. person. But this was Phil Collins. Yeah, man. yeah.
0: I mean, like. There's no cynicism, no rock star. No. He, he was kind of goofy and yeah. fun. I love that guy. I think you're totally right.
1: And I love him.
0: He's playing again, too, which is great news. I didn't know that. Yeah, because he, he wasn't able to play drums for a while, and he's he's back at it. What happened? He—I can't remember exactly what it is, but he had some illness. Uh, I can't remember exactly what, huh. but where he, like, wasn't performing and didn't think he would again. Oh, boy. Yeah, so it's kind of cool. He's back out there again. He's great. susudio and it up.
1: That's awesome. <laughs> I love that, man.
0: Uh, because of the 20-minute set, some bands got—you know, like you 2 only got in two <laughs> songs— <laughs> Um, that was so dumb generally it was about three some bands like Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers with their tight Don't Boris Get to the Chorus they got in four. Uh, oh, did they yeah wow their set was epic it's great
1: who uh, somebody had like five I counted
0: well Queen did sort of some medleys uh huh and so they ended up getting more songs in there that way
1: there's somebody else though I, I can't quite put my finger on sorry everybody but I saw one oh, yeah. I was like wow that's a lot more songs than it seems like everybody else had they're probably like, hurry
0: up, hurry up, <laughs> yeah. no banter. Yeah. Um, so, one hundred and seventy thousand people total were live at the two shows. Right. Uh, but like we said, twenty five percent of the world, one point five billion people watched it as it was happening. Yeah. Pretty amazing.
1: So, on the actual day of the show, uh, you you already kicked it off, right? It started yeah. in London and then it started in Philadelphia two hours later. Status quo and Joan Baez, and then there was overlap for like. Ten hours, I think. Yeah, ten of the sixteen hours. And then it went afterward. It went to went back to Philadelphia. But Chuck, um, you saw Bohemian Rhapsody, right?
0: Uh, three
1: times. Did you really see it three times? Mm -hmm. That's adorable. Yeah. Um. (laughs) So that part uh, at the end when they recreate Live Aid, Uh have you? Did you see the YouTube video of the Live Aid version and the Bohemian Rhapsody version?
0: Uh, I did not watch the side by side comparison. It's because pretty I did not close. need
1: to. It is pretty close. <laughs>
0: yeah, I mean, I, I've watched that Live Aid performance dozens and dozens of times. Really? Yeah, and they they nailed it. Um, The the thing that bothered me about that movie was how much they rewrote the timeline in the band. Oh, yeah. So it was not Queen's first performance back, and like they had just reunited and forgiven each other, and right. he had just told them about HIV. Like, none of that.
1: Yeah. The timeline's so out of whack. Supposedly, he didn't know he had HIV yet. At the Live Aid show.
0: I can't remember exactly. Is was, was that I'm it? I'm pretty sure. But took I mean, a lot of license. They took a lot of license. Yeah. And, you know, it's fine. You're trying to make a more dramatic film. Mm-hmm. I get it. Uh, but I don't know if it needed it because that performance itself, still, if you look up any what were the best performances of Live Aid, it's almost roundly um, Queen is in the number one spot.
1: Yeah. And not just Live Aid, like a lot of people point to that as like one of the greatest Mini set yeah. ever.
0: No, the BBC did a poll in 2005, and that was named as the number one greatest rock performance of all time.
1: That is really great. I mean, it just
0: gave me chills. Pretty amazing.
1: I got chills right now, not even watching it, just hearing you talk about a <laughs> BBC poll.
0: Or if you're a medium writer, the article said... Uh, it was like Adam touching God on mm-hmm. the Sistine Chapel ceiling. Check. Ben Franklin wielding a lightning rod. Okay. Or E.T. phoning home.
1: No. Man. They had me right up <laughs> until the last one right there. That's just so like, come on. Just say it's great. I didn't get the last. It was like E.T. phoning home? Yeah. <laughs> like so I really tried to go in the writer's head too and I was like, nope, that was personal. Yeah. That person really (laughs) was moved by E.T. phoning home or something.
0: Uh, What else do we get? We got a lot of, anytime you have a big thing like this, you have a lot of uh, people collaborating on stage. Uh, Sting and Dire Straits, of course. Well, yeah. Uh, Mick Jagger and Tina Turner, that was pretty unforgettable.
1: But not just Mick Jagger and Tina Turner, because it turns out that Tommy Mottola, who's the head of Sony Records, said, hey, if you don't get Hall and Oates on with Mick Jagger, (laughs) Mick Jagger's not going on. And Holland Oates backed up Tina Turner and uh, Mick Jagger. Oh, really? Yeah.
0: See, I thought that they were saying if you don't give Holland Oates a prime time slot, mm-hmm. then they're not. Then Mick Jagger won't come because he think, represented both.
1: I think that that was their they they equivocated by saying, "Oh, gotcha." We'll have him back up Mick Jagger and Tina Turner. And even still, if you look up Holland Oates, yeah. it just comes up Mick Jagger and Tina Turner. They're they're not even listed <laughs> in the video anymore, but. At least John Oates was backing them them up. Yeah. I'm pretty sure Daryl Hall was, too. Man, they were good.
0: Yeah, still are. Yeah. Uh, Emily saw them a couple of years ago. Just killing it still. Yeah. It's good stuff. I like yeah. that Live at Daryl's House, too, that show.
1: Uh, I haven't seen that.
0: Uh, I don't know if he's still doing it, but he did it for a few years at least, and it's basically his awesome home studio. He just has people over. And a camera crew, and they just jam and do songs.
1: That's great. They'll
0: do like a hollow Oates song mm-hmm. and then mainly the songs of the artist.
1: I feel like I've seen them. It's fun. Since they've been back around. Definitely saw Tears for Fears.
0: Well, they played with them. That might have been.
1: Yeah. They but we with didn't them. stick around for hollow notes. And I think the reason why is because we had seen hollow notes already. Yeah. Like, what happened in my brain, John? <laughs> <child? laughs>
0: Uh, Phil Collins, they got a lot out of Phil Collins, because not only did he sing in both, right. uh, he played drums with Eric Clapton, he played drums with Led Zeppelin.
1: Yeah, famously.
0: Yeah, so let's talk about that Zeppelin performance.
1: We can't dance around this any longer, Chuck.
0: It was not very good. <laughs> it was
1: terrible. Yeah. Like, if you if you saw Led Zeppelin in, like, a 50-person club, and they'd been drinking at the club the mm-hmm. whole day, <laughs> yeah. This is what you would expect to hear from, him. and you'd probably be like, "That was awesome." Yeah, but for the first time back on stage together in five years yeah. since the death of their drummer, yeah, they they went out at like their peak. There wasn't a decline of Led Zeppelin. They were at their peak when Bonham died, mm. according to me. Okay, um, you don't think so?
0: Uh, I, th- I think their last album was kind of a disappointment.
1: What was that? Physical Graffiti.
0: No, Coda.
1: Oh. Well, You're like, I haven't perfect. heard of that one. <laughs> okay. All right. Fair enough. They, they were still huge, and they, were st- they still had plenty of music left to put out. Yeah. So there were expectations on Zeppelin, okay? Sure. Okay. And they come out and play just a, t- a terrible set. So much of that Phil Collins later on in his um, autobiography said, I was really thinking about walking off stage in the middle. And the reason I didn't is because I knew that people would be talking about, to this day, how Phil Collins ruined Led Zeppelin's set, not about how bad Led Zeppelin's set was. So he said he was air drumming. Trying to keep out of the way. Because there were two
0: drummers, so yeah, he which could he air know. drum.
1: Yeah, which he didn't realize there was going to be two drummers. And he basically said it was just it was just terrible. And if you watch it, it was pretty bad.
0: I'm looking up Led Zeppelin now because I, I don't want to mess up. Uh,
1: I thought you were texting.
0: No. <laughs> Presence was their final album,
1: not Coda. What was on Presence? Oh, no, wait. In Through the Outdoor? See, this is what I'm saying, man. They were still, like, very much at their peak. Oh, good Lord. I can't
0: believe I'm getting all this Zeppelin stuff wrong. Oh, Coda was released in 1982.
1: Yeah, but uh, that was but after this was Bonham's
0: death. A, it was a compilation album. Right, Okay, right. that's what I was thinking. So
1: their last studio album would have been, what, Presence or Into the Outdoor? I think Presence. Okay.
0: Which didn't have much.
1: Presence. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Nice. Should we cut that joke? No, no, I like it. <laughs> The the deadness is your... becoming like full bore. <laughs> did did I have a micro expression go over my uh, face?
0: Quite a few. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, if you watch Zeppelin's performance, it, they wanted it scrubbed from the world. You can still. Yeah. Find like cruddy versions on YouTube.
1: Not the official live aid. No, version, no, no. Though.
0: Just like the guy that had the camera on his shoulder in his living room, basically.
1: Apparently Santana requested the same thing. You can't find Santana set anymore. Oh really? Because they said don't include that on the, I didn't on even the know official they version. It. Huh. But they it worked. Wow. No Streisand effect on them.
0: Uh, Zeppelin's isn't the worst thing I've ever seen, but Robert Plant was not in great form vocally. And he admits such. Like they all look back and were like, eh, "It wasn't great."
1: No, Jimmy Page was um, didn't do that great of a job either. It wasn't. It wasn't so horrendous that you're just like holding your nose. Yeah, but it just wasn't anything like what everybody was hoping for.
0: Sabbath's was pretty good. I really, despite it was see chunky, big haired Ozzy. But <laughs>
1: <laughs> what else do you want from Ozzy? It was
0: uh, they did Children of the Grave, Iron Man, and Paranoid, and nice. It was it was pretty. You know, I want to say words here. We we don't say on this show.
1: <laughs> B-wording?
0: <laughs> yeah, it okay. was. Um,
1: we say that. We've said that before. Really? Sure.
0: All right. That was awesome. Okay. <laughs> uh, live Aid at Wembley ended at around 10 p.m. with Do, Do They Know It's Christmas. They brought everyone that they could out on stage. Uh, of course, Paul McCartney there, was there. The Who was there. Mm-hmm. And then right after that ended, they switched the live feed over to Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers uh, with their great, great set. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did American Girl, Refugee, The Waiting, and Rebels. And uh, in 85, despite the clothes, it was still, like, kind of peak Tom Petty, too.
1: Sure. I think. Despite The clothes really got to you, huh? Yeah, it's just kind of,
0: you think of these classic rockers, and then you see them in Cavaricis and, like, I, I Day think Glow. I think it's dope. <laughs> you like <it? laughs> Bob Dylan was there, man. He actually, Bob Dylan very famously, like, will not pick up an acoustic guitar and, like play his old folk right. standards anymore? Did he on this one? Yeah, he played "Blown in the Wind,"
1: and he was dressed almost identically <laughs> to the Fresh Prince.
0: <laughs> oh, that would have been really, really disappointing. Eighties. Oh my lord! Um, and then they they closed the Philly show uh, with "We Are the World," right? And whoever was there who could chip in, like Kenny Loggins and Sheena Easton and Melissa Manchester. Man, this is so eighties. Do you remember her? Do you, oh
1: yeah. Okay, I had to look her up. Uh, I, was yeah? like, I know the name, but, but she's saying, Don't cry out loud.
0: Mm, good song.
1: Theme from Ice Castles.
0: Yeah, that's an, uh our mutual friend Allison that we used to work with uh, mm-hmm. calls those Carsick songs because it just reminds her of like being in the back of a station wagon, <laughs> listening to AM radio it's and like, being like sick. <laughs> I think it's a good, good thing. Yeah. Uh, so they raised about 125 million bucks, which is about 300 million today. Donations did pick up when Queen played. They over kind of, they really (laughs) played that up in the movie. But they did have an uptick uh, when Queen went on because it was such a great performance.
1: Yeah, I think Geldof was kind of anticipating like the phone just be ringing off the hook the whole time. Yeah. And um, he got very frustrated visibly uh, several times during the broadcast. Yeah. He said the F word.
0: Yeah, that got people pumped up.
1: It did. Um there was he they they went to like an interview where they were kind of talking up the reason why Live Aid was going on. Yeah. And um the interviewer was like, "Well, here's the let's get the address up on the on the screen." And he said, F the address, just give him the phone." Yeah, like what are phone people number. just to
0: mail in a check?
1: Right. Yeah, that's what they were thinking. Wow. So so uh in like his bandmates or other I I don't know who else was was there, who The uh, other rats? I guess maybe, or else maybe one was, um, uh, oh, what is his name? Uh, Midge Ure. He He's kind oh, of from Ultravox. Yeah. He's kind of an unsung, overlooked coordinator. He really helped Geldof yeah. put this together. He might have been up there, but they all kind of look at each other like, oh my God, he just said the F word on the BBC. And that got the MTV generation going. The phone started ringing around then because somebody just said the F word on TV, which, if you remember back before South Park came along, mm-hmm. that did not happen. No, no. It did not happen. Like, damn was, I don't want to say controversial, yeah. but it was like, it it perked your ears up when you heard that on TV because it was just so out of the ordinary. Oh, and
0: an F-bomb. This
1: guy said the yeah. F-word in 1985 <laughs> on TV. On live TV, being yeah. broadcast around the world, yeah. it got people's attention for yeah, sure. Yeah,
0: that's still a big deal to hear in a live TV. Te- like, if you hear that at an award show or something, yeah. it's not shocking, but... Everyone goes, "Ooh, you're not I supposed know. to do that." The little eight-year-old
1: and he's <laughs> like, "Ooh,
0: you're gonna get in trouble." <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all right, let's take another break, and we'll talk about uh, what went on behind the scenes, and where all this money went. Right after this.
1: Uh, Chuck, yes? let's talk about what went on behind the scenes and where all this money went.
0: <laughs> so, to put together a show this big, especially in six months, um, there are going to be a lot of problems. And there were, uh, if you talk to the artists, they all across the board had monitor issues. Oh, really? Yeah, and just couldn't, Led Zeppelin, I mean, they they didn't blame it on that. But you even hear Robert Plant in the thing say, like, let's see if we can get these monitors going. Uh, and they couldn't hear themselves. And I always had heard that until I started playing shows with my my dumb old man band. Mm-hmm. Like we can't hear ourselves. And I was always like, What do you mean? Right. Like you got these amps blasting. Right. But it's true, you can't hear yourself on a stage. And especially an outdoor stage, unless you've got really, really great systems and monitors, you can't hear yourself. And it's very, very disconcerting to play music. When it's, all you hear is like
1: the twang <laughs>
0: Well, it's just weird. Like, you know that they're hearing something that you're not hearing, right. and you're just like, I hope it's okay. I got gotcha. you. So no one could hear themselves, which is a problem. Um, I believe that they had power issues at Wembley where they thought it might completely go out. Oh, like, man. they were having little brownouts. Mm-hmm. Um, there were, you know, even though this is for charity, there were you still are dealing with huge diva Pop and rock stars right. and their management,
1: who had all by this time found out that Jerry wasn't there. So what's the point of going on stage?
0: <laughs> well, I mean, they were, you know, there were still behind the scenes like ego battles, and like you can't go on after this act, right. or my guy won't go on after this person, yeah. or you know trying to get more time than 20 minutes.
1: Well, so so much so that uh, Billy Joel actually did not go on yeah. because he, <laughs> um, his manager was like, they want you to do piano, and believe me, these other guys ain't playing piano. You're going to look puny compared to yeah. these other sets.
0: And he went, do you mean Piano Man, the song? And they went, no, they want you to play the piano, Comma, which is... man. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, That was so great and dumb (laughs) Um, And he was like You mean the instrument that made me famous That I wrote a song about That I play on 99% of my songs They want me to do that (laughs) And he went yeah And he went I'm
1: not doing it No way (laughs) Billy Joel doesn't play piano for nobody (laughs)
0: He's like I'll just get my telecaster And do Matter of Trust three times That's a a good song That's a deep Billy Joel joke Is it? No not the deepest But that's the one where he plays guitar on stage Oh, okay. It's kind of like the, the only song that he plays guitar on.
1: Do you know he went and played like a couple of dates in the Soviet Union and like ended up helping to yeah. thaw relations between the U.S. and the USSR? Yeah. Almost single-handedly? Yeah. He also threw a tantrum on stage the first night because it was a bunch of like government muckety-mucks just standing yeah. in the front row staring the, the at military. him. The military.
0: Oh, was it? And government muckety-mucks, and he was like, get the real fans out here.
1: Right, so he like pushed his piano over in mid, and then doesn't miss a beat, like keeps singing and the band keeps playing, even though they're probably terrified that they're (laughs) going to be put in a Soviet gulag forever.
0: I will still go see him every single time. Sure. I have a chance.
1: But anyway, Billy Joel didn't play Live Aid is the point.
0: No, he didn't. And he wasn't the only one. (laughs) Yeah, Van Halen turned it down, Uh, Diana Ross, Liza Minnelli, boy, I don't know why they asked her
1: well i don't know Liza? yeah
0: i mean that's not i'm not knocking her but i don't know it just doesn't seem like a fit it doesn't you're right it's like between sabbath and led zeppelin they're gonna try liza minnelli out there
1: (laughs) (laughs) forget your troubles come on get happy
0: uh yoko ono uh cindy Lauper, talking heads stevie wonder acdc and springsteen who still really really regrets not doing live aid
1: not just him a lot of them do uh Frankie goes to Hollywood turned it down. Yeah. And apparently that was their manager who who was like you don't want to do this. It's going to be like a disaster. And mm. the band was like afterward, they said it was the the worst management decision in the history of Frankie, said the lead singer. Really? Yeah. Um they were really upset that they didn't do it. Springsteen said I really wish I would have just thrown the guitar in the back seat and driven on down. <laughs> That's what he said he'd wish he'd. Driven done. on down the Thunder
0: Road. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he, he, yeah, Springsteen should have done it, and I think he knows that.
1: There was a lot of regret among people who didn't. Some people were like, I'm just absolutely not doing it. Michael Jackson was... It says here that he was in the studio, but mm-hmm. I I read that he uh, didn't sign on in protest because there weren't any African acts on the bill. Oh, interesting. Or enough African acts on the bill for his taste. Huh. Um, and then Huey Lewis was another one.
0: Yeah, that was a big one that turned out to—and uh, that'll be a good segue, too, to what happened to the money. Because Huey Lewis is one of the few artists who came out just a few weeks before and publicly said, like— Where's this money going and is this really really helping to fight famine cuz that's what's important to the news my friend
1: <laughs> I was really surprised <laughs> I didn't realize that Huey Lewis was that woke
0: Yeah and and that's a very good point like um Can I
1: say woke Okay <laughs> Jerry loved Jerry
0: <laughs> Um that was the big question to Huey Lewis and he's like I'm not going out there and signing up for this cuz I don't really know it, the, the he was Slightly cynical, but rightfully so, I think.
1: Yeah. He had been in USA for Africa and was like, I'm, I'm not convinced that that money, by this time, you know, tens of millions of dollars, yeah. is actually making it to the famine victims. And everybody was like, what famine victims? He's like, don't you remember? That's the whole reason we're doing this. And Geldoff, right. I, I I don't want to make it sound like Geldoff ever lost focus. Like, that is why not. he did this. Yeah, And he proved it during the show when he stomped on stage. He's like, give me your money. These people are dying yeah. now.
0: And he's still very adamant and defensive about the funds right. Geldoff is.
1: But Huey Lewis was the first one to publicly say, I'm not certain that these famine victims are actually getting this money. And yeah. um, we talked about this. We did an episode on famine. hmm and droughts, and I believe it was the famine one that we talked about it in. Yeah. But six months after Live Aid was finished and complete and just made like $150 million, I believe. Something like that, yeah. Um, worth more than $300 million a day. This concert, mm-hmm. one-day concert, raised nearly $300 million for victims of famine in Africa mm-hmm. in a little country called Ethiopia that most people hadn't heard of. Um and Spin Magazine sent a reporter there and said, go find out what happened to that money. And Spin Magazine's reporter came back and was like, yeah, I don't know if you guys want to hear what happened to that money. Because it turns out that Ethiopia was in the midst of a civil war that was being report on, reported on even less yeah. than the famine. And it turns out that the government in Ethiopia was actually largely causing the famine or at least exacerbating the worst of it.
0: Yeah, weren't they uh, – so there was a, a, the Dirge. Is that yeah, what it was
1: called? Which means or committee. They were the military junta.
0: Yeah, the Dirge regime. And they uh, – after Haile Selassie died in 1975, they took control as this military group.
1: Well, they, they may have actually strangled them to death. Well,
0: it says in the article, <laughs> suspicious death. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's fair to say. Okay. Um, but there was uh, – they were basically – there, there are various stories, depending on who you want to believe. Bob Geldof still says that most of this money went there. Mm-hmm. But there are other reports that it was being intercepted, aid was being intercepted, mm-hmm. and they were funding their civil war. Yeah. And that they were making the famine worse by dropping napalm on croplands right. this whole time.
1: Cutting off supply lines to the north. Yeah. And the north, there was, this, there was a civil war going on because the north used to be a country called Eritrea. And then in World War II, Ethiopia said, you, you're you coming with us. Mm-hmm. You're part of Ethiopia now. And um, there was an insurgency that eventually was successful, I think, in 1992. Eritrea became independent from Ethiopia again. But this is how that happened, through the Civil War. And all of a sudden, the West injects $125 million into this country that's wracked by famine and civil war, and civil war that's helping cause the famine, and apparently, either a lot of people didn't know about this or a lot of people didn't think we may actually be helping the civil war right. by injecting this money and into this country and turning it victims. over to the Ethiopian government. Yeah. And still to this day, it's not entirely clear how much the Ethiop- Ethiopian government spent on like arms and supplies to fund this 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 war against the insurgency in the North.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's one of my biggest fears of any kind of mm-hmm. thing like this. Yeah. Of, like, handing over these kind of sums of money to countries that uh, you don't know where it ends up. It's just, like, it's maddening to think, because you want to do the right thing. Right. And donate and support these causes. Right. But if it's actually making things worse.
1: Right. You know? That's the thing. It's one thing if, if you know, it's it's – not helping as much as you would like it to. Right. It's an entirely different thing if you're actually giving money to make it easier for somebody to kill some other person. Right. Like making it worse. Yeah. And that's the big question that surrounds, you know, the funds from Live Aid still. And
0: yeah, and I think it's frustrating because the BBC in 2010 mm-hmm. published a report uh, kind of claiming a lot of this, the money being diverted to ill, you know, uh, reputed places and People.
1: Yeah, they said the opposite. They said that the rebel insurgency in Eritrea right. intercepted most of the money, and they used it to fund their their um, civil war.
0: But then they retracted a lot of the stuff because Geldof, you know, got mad. And this is only, you know, eight or nine years ago. Yeah. And he was like, no, that's not true. So— right. Uh, there's still just a lot of debate over where that money went.
1: Right. The BBC retracted the story and published an apology too. So they they may have gotten that really wrong. Yeah. I don't think they they do that kind of thing just because Bob Geldof gets mad. You know. <laughs> so <laughs> he's a beless Irish rocker. <laughs> right. I think they got the reporting very wrong. Yeah. But I also have the impression that Geldof, whether he believes. And and a lot of the funds went to NGOs on the ground, aid groups on yeah. the ground. It didn't all just go to the Ethiopian government. No, no, no. And f- apparently in the aid industry, um, they still look at this like, okay, even if some of the money didn't get to where you wanted it and it went to places you wouldn't want it to go, yeah. this still helped raise awareness of the kind of stuff that goes on in Africa that the West was not aware of. Oh, it was
0: it had a huge, huge impact right. on – how you should do these events in the future. Mm -hmm. Um, This kicked off Farm Aid and...
1: uh, Hands Across America. (laughs) Remember that? Hands Across America, for sure. Uh Have you seen Us yet? No, but I ran across an article (laughs) that referenced that, and I was like, oh, I can't wait to see that movie even more now.
0: It's good. Um, But, yeah, I mean, it kicked off Farm Aid. It kicked off, like, every benefit concert, global benefit concert you've ever seen since then Mm -hmm. can trace its roots back to Live Aid.
1: Including Live Eight. Right. Which was another Geldof one that a lot of people said, call it Live Aid 2 and you'll get a lot more traction.
0: Yeah, but that wasn't to raise money. That was just to raise awareness for right. the Live Aid conference. And, the, the G8. Uh, oh, yeah, what I say? The Live Aid conference? Yeah. <laughs> the G8 summit. But,
1: but think about it. Geldof wasn't trying to raise money anymore. Right. He was trying to raise awareness. And I wonder if that was because he either became convinced that that money did go to sources that he didn't want it to, or if he was just like, I'm tired of arguing about it, I'm not well, gonna go maybe. through this again. But as a result of that, um the eighteen poorest nations in the world had their debts canceled by the eight eight richest yeah. nations in the world. And I think the aid to Africa was like doubled um over the previous G eight summit.
0: Yeah, and it you know, it- previous to 1985 you didn't i mean you had like george harrison doing the concert for bangladesh mm-hmm. which was kind of one of the first high profile things like that but you didn't see a ton of uh big rock stars out f- you know championing causes right and uh i think it really inspired a generation of young people and uh of the pop and rock celebrities of that age too to like maybe do something beneficial with their riches in their more. life yeah For sure. Lay off
1: the the cocaine for a couple of days and go do something with your life, you rocker.
0: Yeah. You can get back on the cocaine in a week. Sure.
1: Just put it off to the side. Yeah. so Just put an upside down magazine over it and come back to it later.
0: It was a monumental event and one that I have a a lot of fondness for still. Big, big deal.
1: That's great. I don't remember any of it. I remember watching it on MTV and my big sisters were there, but I don't remember. I have no real memories. I was pretty stupid, I guess. No, you were nine. I was almost nine, two days shy of being nine. Yeah. I mean, what is that, third grade? I was probably out playing with, like, He-Man stuff most of the time. Yeah, exactly. Trying to find cigarette butts on the ground. (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) Just a few years later, though. That's right. Uh, If you want to know more about Live Aid, I think Chuck and I, and probably Jerry, would strongly advise you to just go onto YouTube and spend a little time looking at concert footage from it.
0: Yeah, or send in your special Live Aid memories. Oh,
1: that's a good one, too. Yeah.
0: I like being in London and not knowing it was going on. Right. (laughs)
1: I love that one. Um, and since we said that, since we made fun of Jerry's terrible Live Aid story, it's time for Listener Man.
0: Uh Hey, guys. Listening to your episode on Rape Kits, my heart sank when you apologized for being two dudes educating people about the options one might have after being raped or sexually assaulted. It sounded as if you thought that men in general are not fit to do this, which I don't think is true. I'm a doctor, guys, who works with men and women that experience sexual violence, and I imagine that male victims would find an apology of this kind unnecessary at best, as would the male therapists who are doing great work and who can serve uh, as much needed therapeutically invaluable counterexamples after someone has had bad experiences with men. I also don't think your initial disclaimer that this would be a serious episode without any jokes was warranted, and I'm glad the episode didn't turn out that way. If anything, your good natured humor brought some much needed warmth to the discussion. Uh, we are all still trying to figure out how to talk about these topics. And I would like to encourage you to stand by your efforts, shining a light on a difficult topic for the benefit of your listeners. Uh, Thank you guys. Keep it up. Uh, That is from Hanno.
1: Hanno. Mm -hmm.
0: H-A-N-N-O. Thanks a lot, Hanno. It's a great name. Yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, it said uh, Hanno was in Hanover, Germany.
1: No. Yeah. Really? Uh Uh-huh. I wonder if uh, they like the town so much, they just said, call me Hanno from now on, everybody. Maybe. I love this town.
0: It's like me. I'm from Chucktown.
1: (laughs) You're (laughs) Addle.
0: What? ATL. Oh, gotcha.
1: Yeah, Chucktown, I guess, makes more sense. (laughs) If either one does. Well, thanks a lot, Hanno. We appreciate that. We will try to take your advice to heart because it is pretty good advice. Uh, And if you want to get in touch with us like Hanno did, you can go on to stuffyoushouldknow.com and find our social links. You can also send us an email to stuffpodcast at iHeartRadio.com.
0: Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.